When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, Holly. Hey, Dave. Welcome to the What Difference Does It Make podcast. How are you doing today? I am so happy to be here today. We got some friends in the neighborhood. Who do we have? Cordo Valley recording artists, the immediate family. So the immediate family, while you may not know them by the name of the band, they have played with all of our favorite artists over the years, over 50 years. These guys are the greatest studio musicians of all time. They have played with everyone from Warren Zevon, Linda Ronstadt, Stevie Nicks, Keith Richards, Carly Simon, everybody. We have Danny Korchmar, Wadi Wachtel, Steve Postel, Leland Sklar, and Russ Kunkel. So let's welcome the family to our neighborhood. Welcome, you guys. Welcome. Yeah, Thanks, it's glad to be here. We are thrilled to be here. Yeah, this is great. Let's get started with immediately with the immediate family. This is not just a one-off project. Initially, it was Danny. It start with you. You you had an opportunity to to start a band. Is that how this happened? Yeah, I was offered a uh, deal to make a record for a Japanese label, and they were going to finance it and everything like that. And um, I didn't know exactly which way to jump with it for a while. And then I realized that everyone was in town. Amazingly, Russ and Lee were around. Waddy was still out. Roddy came in later. When I realized that Russ and Lee were around and that Wad was going to be around, you know, around for the last couple of days, I said, well, that's the way we got to go. You know, my oldest and dearest pals, guys I've been playing with for a million years. So we started to play and started to record what was going to be a solo album for me. And as we were doing it, I realized, and I think we all realized, how great it would be to make it into a band and to gig and proceed as, as, a, as a band, a rock and roll band. So that's kind of what we did. First gig I think we did was, uh, we, well, it wasn't the first gig, but we ended up going to Japan to promote the album. I asked the record company there, that I asked them to, to call it Danny Gorshman and Immediate Family, which we did. Now, of course, it's just Immediate Family and we are a band. You know, we're, we take it real seriously. We love it. We love each other. We're all very close friends. And that's how it came to pass. Most of you have known each other for close to 50 years. Yes. 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 That's right. I'm not even sure who to direct this one to. Well, I'll take it. Wadi. Yeah. <laughs> we know all the artists that you guys have played for in the past, Jackson Brown, Linda Ronstadt, and we know that you've overlapped, but how much did you play together back then? And how much was there, were you playing like in parallel with other artists? Well, we were playing in studio for all these different artists. So a, a normal week would be a, a day full of sessions where I would start the day probably with Leland and Russell on a session for somebody, then go to another session and Danny would be there. We'd play on a session together. You know, later on that night, maybe uh, as the years went by, I was producing Warren Zevon. So all of a sudden I got Leland, Russell and, and Danny in the studio with us. And that's how it is. I mean, we were just constantly in each other's lives every day, almost every day. We would meet and be playing for Stevie or Linda or Rita Coolidge or Andrew Gold or Helen Reddy. It was in an assortment of every artist in town. And we were meeting every session. One or two of us would at least be together on a date during the week, every day constantly together. 
All five of you? Well, no, we didn't. Steve is the newcomer. We've only known him about 15 years. <laughs> so he's the greenest one, but we've been in each other's lives for like 50 years. I mean, I met Leland first. I met Russell next. And then Lou Adler hired me to come play on a session with Leland, Russell, and Danny. There was the beginning of the band right then. It was the first time we'd all been together. And we played a million sessions together since then. Was the Troubadour part of this scene for you guys? Russell, take that. Sure, yeah. Um, I played at the Troubadour. We played there with, with James and Carol. We played there a couple times. What was the first year, Danny, that we did that? 1970? Probably 70, 71, something like yeah. that. And I played there another time with Carly Simon and went there a lot to see lots of bands. I saw Elton John there when he played the first time when he came over with his band which is phenomenal. Saw Cat Stevens there. It was one of the great places to go. Actually, that does remind me. It was actually on this day in 1971 that James Taylor hit number one with You've Got a Friend. Who was in the on those sessions? I know a couple of you guys Danny. were there. Danny. Well, that was, uh, that was Russell Lee and myself. For some reason, I always thought that Carol Kane's version was a single as well, but it wasn't. It was James. Apparently not. No, it was an album cut. James shoulder hopped her on that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You played on both sessions. Is that correct? Well, I did. Uh, yeah. I don't know. I did too. Yeah. And Russell did. Danny, Carol has an answer to that question. How does she, she always politely answers it. <laughs> that, that James kind of just said, oh, by the way, I recorded your song before she had a chance to record it. <laughs> Something like that. Yeah. But they all got along. There was no hard feelings. Right, and, right. Uh, you know, everyone was selling records and everyone was making money. So nobody got bent out of shape behind it. It was a true yeah. family. Was Joni Mitchell on those sessions as well? She sang back up with James on You Got a Friend. She's one of the harmony singers. Um, oh, okay. I think there's also talk of a documentary with you men. Is this true? It's in the works. Leland, tell him. Come on, Leland, speak Leland. up. Yeah, speak up. The, the quiet guy in the background playing the bass, holding it together. Very yeah. funny, the comedian. Um, yeah. yeah. Denny Tedesco is doing a documentary uh, about us. Denny Tedesco was Tommy Tedesco's son, and he made the documentary the Wrecking Crew, which is a fantastic just moment in time of some of the greatest musicians L.A.'s ever known. And they approached us about doing a documentary about us. And, and uh, Denny's spin on it was real interesting because, you know, he said that the Wrecking Crew was basically about 12 years of work and nobody ever left the studio. They never toured. Their engagement with the artists was strictly in the studio and he said, you guys are completely different. You've been together for 50 years, and you've toured with the artists. You've written songs for the artists. You've produced the artists. So it's going to be a very different thing. I know personally I was profoundly flattered that they uh, approached us, and you know, because we live in our skin every day and don't really have that perspective on what we've done. We kind of all know what we've done over all these years, but when somebody presents it to you like that, it's pretty flattering. And you go, it's exciting. You know, if it wasn't for the uh, situation we're in right now with COVID, things would have maybe moved a little bit quicker, but everybody's trying to be as safe as possible. So we're finding alternative ways of doing some of the interview things and things like that where we can't be hands-on together. But it is thrilling. It's absolutely thrilling. And I talked to Denny and Greg, the guys all involved in this thing all the time, and they are still completely pumped about it. So it's going to be great. It's going to really be something special, I think. They've done a, a lot of interviews with major artists that we've worked with over the years. They have forensic people going through archival footage to do all that. Yeah, Denny was actually here yesterday in the studio. Oh, great. Uh, filming. 
and I was showing them some of our new songs, and they're pretty far along. They're doing, they were doing sort of what they call B-roll of just, I think they've done everybody else, of just us in our natural habitats, in our cave. <laughs> right. And Leland, you got to play with some of the working crew. Is that is that correct when you first started oh, yeah, out? The wrecking crew. Oh, wrecking crew. Wrecking crew. Jeez, <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah, I mean, it, it was very odd for me. I was in a band in 1967, and when we went in the studio, we weren't allowed to play on our record. The uh, wrecking crew played on our record. We, we, were, we were allowed to sing on it. And I sat there looking through United Studio A window, and I looked in there, and there was uh, Carol Kay and Hal Blaine and... Jim Gordon and Melvoin and Rubini and that. And I looked at that and I thought, not in a million years could I do this job. I mean, they're unbelievable. And three years later, I was working with those guys every day. I mean, all of them were dear friends. And I, I, I did a lot of records with all the people within the wrecking crew. And it, it's been hard now, you know, because they've all reached that age where, you know, on a regular basis, it's like World War II vets. Yeah. You know, you catch them and stuff when you can because they are starting to, to go. And we lost Hal a while back. And it's heartbreaking, but their legacy is going to live forever because they made some fantastic music. Yeah, that's why it's great to have that documentary. And it's great that they're yeah. they're recording, they're getting you guys on that. I, I, in your I, prime. I, I saw yeah, one thanks, interview. Holly. <laughs> Holly's good at that. I did see one thing where, uh, Leland, you did learn a trick about when you're talking to producers or they ask you to do something. I'll give, I'll give you a quick synopsis. I was doing a project at Universal Studios. They used to have a beautiful studio there, and we used to do all of our TV shows there. And I think we were doing Airwolf or Knight Rider, one of those shows. And I'm sitting next to Tommy Tedesco. And in those days, when you were sitting behind baffles, all the people in the room could see was basically the, your nose and your eyes. The uh, guy across the room who was conducting kept asking Tommy for different instruments because he wasn't hearing what he wanted to hear. And there's a pretty good-sized orchestra. And, Tommy would just bend down and pick, disappear and pick up another instrument and play it until the guy finally heard the instrument he wanted. And I was crying. I was laughing so hard because Tommy only had his acoustic guitar with him. So he would just bend over like he was picking something up, sit back up, and then play it in a different position until the guy heard what he wanted. And I looked at Tommy and I said, I just learned more in five minutes how this business works. <laughs> than I did in all of my years of formal education. So I went home and drilled a hole in my base and put a switchcraft toggle switch in it with no wires or anything going to it so that when a, a producer would say, can you make that shimmer a little bit more? Can you make it more mauve or yeah. something? Um, I would make sure they could see me flip the switch and then I would just play in a different position and then they would be thrilled and give me a thumbs up. <laughs> Saved me a lot of aggravation, so. but it was just a placebo. But I got that from Tommy Tedesco's uh, way he handled himself. The tricks you learn along the way. Uh, actually, Bass Player Magazine used to, every April, they would put in fake ads for April Fools, but people didn't know that they were fake ads. And they put in the Leland Sklar producer switch in there. And they said, you had no idea how many people were writing in and how they could go. And I'm thinking, I was such a schmuck. I could have bought a couple of boxes of these things for two bucks a piece and sold them for like $65 each and made some dough out of this. That's right. <laughs> oh, that's going to go on our merch, on our merch uh, store. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely. Definitely. A little stick on. It just sticks on your guitar. Yeah. If you're a singer, you could put it on your forehead. <laughs> That's a great idea. And now only listeners of this podcast are going to know the real, yeah. you know, the real story when they start buying them up. 
Absolutely. Yeah. All right, Russ, they always blame the drummer, right? So uh, the drummer always lays down the beat first, right? Isn't that how the song kind of developed? I don't really have any any unique, you know, kind of drummer recording stories. I was <laughs> usually just terrified the whole time I was in there playing, just hoping not to get fired. <laughs> so uh, that's terrifying enough. But I can't I can say something about all these lads here that I'm in this incredible band with. It's that everybody in their own way is a perfectionist, and we help each other be better than we normally are you know and we push each other to uh to really good <laughs> to, to better places than we could get there on our own well you stepped on a lot of toes and you broke a lot of hearts and you broke up and down against a lot of people's body parts you thought that loving would be good for you you ask carol king for lyrics because you want to get the yeah. right feel for a song is that is that what you usually well, I, do for uh, songs yeah. For, for that, on that particular project, that was, you know, a little album that did pretty good called Tapestry. I just wanted to know what she was talking about in the song. And a lot of times when you're recording a song in the studio, you're not paying attention to the lyrics because you're looking at a chord chart or you're, like I said, trying not to get fired. So the lyrics, you maybe assimilate the lyrics a little bit later on after you've heard it a few times. In those sessions, we didn't do a whole lot of takes of those songs. So if I read the lyrics once through, then I'd kind of get the gist of what she's talking about. And it kind of helped my muse come up with something to play, you know, that I thought would be appropriate. You're such a better person than me. <laughs> what do you have all that money for all right leland why is that <laughs> it's it's singles it's singles yeah but why is that to go no. to the strip club are you going to the strip bar? <laughs> no I, I i tend to put packages together keep them in my truck and when i see somebody that looks needy i've got a package with like socks and some oh, that's cool. money and you know keep lots of sing singles and fives and hand what them time up. are you coming over really nice. uh, i can't afford <laughs> yeah. you Okay. Yeah, that's nice and just so everybody knows that was Leland yeah, yeah. He, he, what a humanitarian way better than me yeah, well I've kept it all that's why I've got that stack <laughs> right, yeah. it's, it's all buried yeah, yeah. in your backyard that, yeah. that was so I, dollar one yeah <laughs> I look in a mirror I see who's needy oh. <laughs> so I assume now you're not you're not worried about getting fired anymore it's not like these guys are going to fire you no no uh, no I, not <laughs> Well, you know, you never know. Do you ever get over that? I mean, when you're playing with someone new, do you still get those butterflies? Yeah, always. Yeah. I think we all do to a certain extent, yeah. you know, even for as much music as we've played, we all played together, you know? We're just all so codependent. I think it keeps you on your toes. Yeah. Not yeah. the codependency, I mean, the you know, that feeling, the butterflies. and Yeah, yeah. sure. With the music that you've been playing live, how do you decide who gets to sing what? Gee, I guess Maybe. it's whoever wrote it or uh, yeah. whoever song it is. That's what I had assumed, but I think I had watched something that was not. If I can, this is Steve. Uh, sometimes they called me and said, I have a song that I wrote, and I think you'd sound great singing it. That happens too. Generally, one of us wrote it, we'll sing it, but there's that happens as well. And some of the stuff that Danny wrote for other guys, like some of the Don Henley stuff, he sings really great, and some of it... Mm -hmm. 
fits my voice. Makes sense. There are certain songs that just denote a different song. One of the songs on the record was a song Danny and I wrote. The best way for it to go was for Steve and Danny to sing this two-part harmony on it. And uh, a, a bunch of people singing on the choruses, but the feature was the two of them singing this. Each song is its own, comes with its own prescription, you know, and you, you find out what about it is the right way to do it. So each song is a special case. When we play live, it's Lee. Uh, when when we play live, the, the guys like to try to mix it up to the point where nobody's singing a bunch of songs in a row. So when you see a live performance, it gets passed around pretty regularly so that everybody has their time with their songs and not... Uh, one guy singing three songs in a row and then somebody else. So that's part of it too. Yeah. And how do you pick a, a, a set list? I mean, you, you have so many, <laughs> so many things to pull from. Who sets up the set list? Who's in charge? We all, we all do. Yeah, We all do. But yeah, and we keep it even. We, you know, we kind of, like Leland said, we alternate the lead vocals. So it goes around and around and around, keep them uh, popping. It's very rare that someone would sing two in a row. And we space out that there's a bunch of hit songs that Wadi and Danny wrote or produced, and we space them out with the new songs and try to make it a balanced in that way. Yeah, I think once the new album comes out, it's going to change the dynamic of the set because we're holding on to some unbelievably great songs right now on the new record that we're not performing yet until the album comes out. And I think that's going to add so much to the set list that, that we were already able to put together because... Uh, the new album stepped up to a whole other level. The writing on it is great. The performances. And I mean, I've been doing this a long time, and I, I can't tell you how proud I am of the new record. It's really something special. Once we can start gigging those songs, too, in yeah. the set and not be holding them back, you know, waiting for a scheduled release and all that, it's going to make for an amazing show. It's culminated. This band and this record, all these years of formative work has really led us down this path to something pretty unique and special that none of us would have ever anticipated 50 years after starting together that we'd be in a band together looking forward you know it's not a nostalgia band that's playing their hits from the 80s or something this is still a, a writing band that's that's creating and moving forward so uh, it's pretty exciting it's rare Bought a man in the street flipped his wings like a It's like Danny says, we're a cover band that plays original material. Yes, I love that. <laughs> Even Genius. when we play the older songs, we, we don't play them the way they were on the record. We, they, take on a, they take on a new character. Yeah. Uh, lyrically, is everyone writing lyrics? Everyone enjoys Everyone it? has written lyrics uh, to the yeah. songs. Leland is not so much of a songwriter, although he could be. 
<laughs> most of the songwriters, the four of us, and uh, you know, lyrics and music. That's great. Are you doing it separately, or is it? Um, I mean, I guess you were putting this together before this this whole thing, COVID took over. Every uh, every combination, oh, okay. all, all different combinations. Okay, yes. kind of like they do it in Nashville. Just lock yourselves in a room until a song comes out. Is that how you guys did it? We don't lock ourselves in a room, but yes. <laughs> All right, talking with five guys. How's it going, Holly? How are you hanging in there? I am great. These five guys are the immediate family. Gonna take a little breather and we will be right back. Pantheon Podcast listeners, Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once, new quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. We're back with Quarto Valley recording artists, the immediate family. On what difference does it make? The podcast. <laughs> we just finished the song during this lockdown that we're going to use uh, in the documentary. And we all did it just by on our computers, you know, we're sending back parts back and forth. We did a whole song pretty much from beginning to the end. You know, the writing, we haven't recorded it yet, but it's written. It can be done. That's, you know, one fun thing to have come out of this is we've been able to see some of the artists, like your video for Cruel Twist. Must have been a fun project to shoot, I mean, under the circumstances. It was fun to shoot, but it's really fun to watch. Yeah. Yeah. You know, when I watched it, I realized what a bunch of characters we are. We're like like the Marx Brothers or something. (laughs) You know, so I I really like watching it, i got to say. The fun part is not knowing what anybody else is doing, and you're just sitting in parts, and then when it gets assembled, then you just kind of go, these guys are nuts. (laughs) But it all works. Amazingly, it all works. That's how well that's going to It's kind of the same as the way we play together. It just works. It It just falls in. Get dealt to you. But one thing you know is true. 
footage was great who shot you each one of us shot our own no but who was working the camera for you is it somebody you know is it a professional was it us we we shot it ourselves we shot it ourselves the cameras were stationary (laughs) okay it was just improv dance is what you guys were doing right yeah i just (laughs) for, for me i just had this little thing and i would click it and it turns on the camera so i would just set it up and frame it and then we yeah. would turn on each of us. We had the song Cruel Twist with a click to start it. And each of us would just turn that on so you could hear the click for syncing purposes. And then just do whatever you're going to act as silly or what, or serious as you want it to be. And I think the only thing that was shot for me was my wife shot my dogs, knocking me out of my hammock. <laughs> uh, yeah, oh, that's right. That. Yeah. So that, that was unexpected, huh? Okay. Yeah, nice. for me too. A little pratfall. Nice. Could do it. <laughs> Danny, you you were in the What's New video. You played Linda Ronstadt's love interest. I have to ask about that and how tough it is to watch Linda sing to you and act. And well, it was it, it was way out of my comfort zone. That's for sure. I was shocked when she called me and asked me to come down there, and I couldn't imagine why. But at the time, I had you know real short, slick back hair, so I guess I looked like somebody from that period. But I, I never felt <laughs> did not feel comfortable. Believe me, doing it. I love Linda madly, but uh, that was written so far out of my comfort zone that I felt very strange doing it. You even got to dance with her. That was, that's kind of cool. Yeah. And she kept saying, no, more, more active. She kept, you know, ribbing me. And I, can I go home now? Can I go home now? <laughs> <laughs> you're miserable. You're dancing with Lindsay. And yeah, you're I was. I mean, as much as I love her and I love her madly, we all do. But, but I was like way out of my, my what, what song was that? What's new? What's new? Oh, I got to go look at that. Oh, it's great. <laughs> <laughs> You'll laugh your ass off. You're phenomenal. No, I tried to stare when I first saw it. Frederick <laughs> 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 uh, <Redrick> stare. <laughs> you also played Ronnie Pudding in Spinal Tap. The zenith of my career. Yes. With, with, with Stompy Pete on drums, which at, at Bigley right. Jr. Danny, Danny tell, him, tell him the Ronnie Pudding story when we were on tour in Australia. Oh, this is terrible. Yeah. So every <laughs> character had their name. My name was Ronnie Pudding in the movie. I decided foolishly to, we all use different names for the hotel listing in case people were trying to get in touch with us that we didn't want bugging us at the hotels. So my name was Ronnie Pudding on the uh, room list. So we were checking out of one of the, <laughs> we're checking out one of the hotels and the woman behind the guy said, Oh, Mr. Pudding, how are you doing? Have you been having a good day, Mr. Pudding? Is everything all right, Mr. Pudding? <laughs> and so I turned around to him and I said, you got to change the name. I don't want, you know, I thought she was going to say, would you like some pudding with your pudding, Mr. Pudding? I thought that was coming up. And uh, so I begged him to change the names and put it back to Danny Korchmar, Final Tino, whatever. And we did. But I couldn't have lived with that. <laughs> Another gig. It was you know, really stupid, really ridiculous. Can anybody share a Spinal Tap moment? There's got to be. Someone's got it. Wadi, please tell me your moment where you got lost trying to find the stage or what. I don't know, but uh, I've been in basements where... Not at all unlike that scene in the movie where they're 
going rock and roll, rock and roll, and trying to get to the stage and taking every wrong turn in this basement. Uh, that happened to me in a, in a theater in uh, Pittsburgh, an old theater called the Stanley Theater. Oh, God. And uh, I was on the road with Linda, and we were down in this basement, and we kept going the wrong way. You know, and Eric Barrett was leading us through this <laughs> fucking basement, and we kept going there. He said, here we go, here we go. Open the door. Not it. Oh, no, oh, no. Now we can't get to the stage. Now we're totally lost. So it was exactly like that moment in the movie. We actually had, we did a benefit with, uh, that, with Harry Shearer and his wife Judith Owen in, in this theater that had a basement. And at one point, Judith and Harry and I were trying to get to the stage. Oh, my God. And we didn't even have to say it. We just looked at each other like, of course, you know. <laughs> Yeah, I here's, thought you were asking for real Here's a final tap moment for you. Oh my oh, gosh. Oh. That's great. Oh god. Rose says Stumpy Joe. Stumpy yeah, that was a that was a shot yeah. that as a still from a shot a scene that didn't make the movie where they're doing a, a like an interview. Like they went to Japan and they're all at a table and they're being interviewed by the press and I'm sitting on the very end and Chris puts these flowers in front of me <laughs> and the, the interviewers the, the the reporters keep wanting to ask me a question and every time they ask me a question chris would answer the question for me and explain that i wasn't capable of answering the question <laughs> so nothing's changed nothing. <laughs> that's great hi being so respectful now <laughs> i do need to ask about when one thing did go right on stage, and that's the uh, the Jackson Brown running on empty tour, just creating that. It's still just amazing to listen to. It's just an amazing work. But Loadout, that song had not been fully rehearsed, or what? what's the story behind Loadout and Stay, you know, getting that? I don't think we rehearsed it. Uh, Rusty, do you remember that? It's a compilation of things because it goes in Stay at the end. But yeah. I think that song was written by uh, Jackson and Brian Groffalo. I think Brian helped him write the lyrics to that or something. At some point, but it was a piece that I think Jackson had already started before we did the tour. But the version that that was recorded was that something that was like a one take or no? That, that whole album was recorded over a whole summer tour. So we I don't know which you know which show that particular take was taken from. We were pretty much doing a similar set every night, but as that, I remember it. But that's kind of exciting playing new music in front of an audience. You know, instead of playing all the all the hits, this, these were songs that weren't known. Did it feel like it was like a club feel, like you're in a small setting and people are still trying to get to know what what these songs are? Well, it's always fun to play new songs on tour, for sure. Yeah, it's hard to say. I mean, that, that there was a dynamic to that tour that was really quite unique, and it's probably one of the few live albums that's truly a live album. But we had so much fun because we would set up, check into a hotel and kind of dismantle the room, sit, take the box, bring in the mattress, and put them up against the walls and Russ would set that up as like his drum booth. And I had a little amp and I'd stick it under the desk where the chair would go. And I mean, it was really kind of like guerrilla recording when we were out there and just took advantage of every opportunity just to do something unique. And the thing that's beautiful is you listen to that record right now and it so still stands the test of time. It feels fresh today. How did you get that great sound? I mean, you're, you're recording in different venues, but it sounds like this one full sound, although it's recorded in so many different areas. I don't, I, I mean, what's... I think what a lot big? of that would also be harkened back to the great Greg Ladani, who recorded it, and his ability to every night really create stuff in the, in the truck or wherever they were recording that had a consistency to it, because he, he was a fantastic engineer, and we all really miss him. I give him a lot of credit for how that album turned out. 
He drove us completely crazy, but he was a <laughs> hell of an engineer. He was the right engineer. This is Danny. He was the right engineer because Jackson at that time, and probably still, was fearless. Nothing stopped him. He just was going to go. He was going to do this. It didn't matter that nobody had heard the songs before. He didn't care. And Greg Ladani, nothing could stop him. There is nothing, he, no problem he won't surmount. At one point, Jackson said, I want to record on the bus. Uh, you know, some engineers would go, how are we going to record on a bus? Are you out of your mind? Greg goes, okay, bang. He figures out how to do it, gets a machine on the bus. At that time, there was, there was no digital. Everything was to tape. So he got a tape machine on the bus, set up microphones on the bus, and the bus took off down the street and away we, we went and we recorded. Like I said, nothing could stop him. He's a brilliant, brilliant engineer, and we miss him a lot. Great guy, too. Dear, yeah. dear friend. Yeah. I'm curious, in mentioning Jackson Brown, from what I've seen, he's been supportive of you guys as a band. Have all the other artists for whom you've written for and played for, have they been equally supportive? Oh, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. 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 Carol, Carol put all our stuff up on her on her Instagram and her site, and I, I saw it on James Taylor's site as well, the, the last video. That's very cool. I, I, it's, it, it's been fun, too, with the interviews, the, the variety of artists that Denny Tedesco's interviewed. Every time we've asked anybody, they're really excited about talking about the band and what it's. I mean, we even got like Billy Bob Thornton loves the band, so he <laughs> he came down and was interviewed, and it's it's cool. It is a family, and all those artists are part of it too. It's just at this point now, instead of being the support team, we are now the artist, yeah. and that's a unique position for us to be in. You feel comfortable with it? Absolutely. I mean, we've been groomed for this for. You know, 2,000 years. <laughs> oh, come on, that, that's a lot, maybe 1,000. Yeah, I mean, I remember that day they invented dirt. <laughs> that was a good day. So I guess, Danny, you probably take what you've learned. I'm sure what you learned and to help Don Henley when you, ha- you got to, uh, to work with him on Building the Perfect Beast and End of the Innocence. You know, what you learned in the studio, did you, you brought that to, to Don? Did he help you with that? or? <laughs> I don't know what I'm trying well, to say. He, he, it, was a collabor- it was a collaboration. He, he wanted somebody to collaborate with to come up with music and, and help him write songs and, and produce the whole thing. And we were on the same page. So it was really that simple. And, uh, you know, the great thing about working with Henley was whatever we wanted, bang, it appeared. There was no budget. And I'd never worked on anything like that before. For instance, there was a, a new instrument called the DX7, the Yamaha DX7. Everyone was talking about it. This in the 80s. So Henley turns to his aide-de-camp, Tony Tabby, and said, Tony, get one. Two days later, the first DX7 in, in Los Angeles shows up at our studio and that kind of stuff. So that was great. I love that. And also, if Don liked the tune, liked a piece of music I was working on, he said, I could sing that. I can write that. We'd start recording right away. You know, that was incredible. And I, I was really turned on by the idea that if I came up with something good, we would start recording immediately from farm to table, as it were. So it worked out <laughs> really, really terrific. How could you have no budget? You was on Geffen. You must have had a budget, right? You must have had a- no, nothing. All right. Irving is off managed on him. Need I say more? Yeah. <laughs> Good point. Well, that, I mean, you were essentially stepping into Glenn Fry's shoes, I guess. Did you no, feel, no, you no, didn't, no. you didn't feel like that at all. Okay, good. Absolutely yeah. not. No, no. It's a completely different relationship and we performed, and I performed a completely different function than Glenn Fry. Yeah. You did Billy Joel's last album. Ever. What happened there? Why'd you scare him from recording ever again? Oh, it wasn't me. <laughs> he had already decided. While was we were it? making the album, he told me, so I'm never going to write another pop song. He was telling me, so I couldn't believe it, you know, because he's so brilliant at writing pop songs. And, and I thought he was really, that was, that he was never stopped. But he, he had told me once we were making the album. As a matter of fact, the last song on the album is called The Last Song. And it was the last song he wrote. That, that was completely his decision. I just felt lucky to be there with him. He's a brilliant, brilliant guy, Billy. 
Yeah. You ever try and get lure into let's the jam. studio again? Yeah. Let's come on, Billy. Let's do something. No. No, it's a <laughs> short answer. Fair enough. Succinct. I wanted to go to James Taylor. Again, I was looking at what happened this day in history. We're recording this on July 31st. In 1979, you guys played a, a free concert in Central Park. And this was the 1979 James Taylor tour, which was a little, it kind of rocked out a little bit for this uh for this mellow group. Yeah, James made the terrible mistake of hiring me and Waddy to be in the, in the band. <laughs> so you know what's going to happen then, you know. The volume gets up, the energy level goes up, you know, and uh, that's kind of the way it was. That tour was so much fun. We yeah. loved it. Great band. We were just killing it. It was really a great experience. One of the best things at that gig in Central Park was when we were all standing backstage and Mayor Koch was there and Gloria Vanderbilt was there. She was one of the sponsors of it. And it was when she was kind of in her kind of kabuki period. <laughs> and I remember one of the Shoko guys, one of the roadies, Leroy Kerr, walks by and he glances over and he goes, who's the mummy? <laughs> <laughs> Man, I just I, I, I almost had a heart attack I was like and, and she's just standing there and mayor's like they're all but Leroy was he just you know he would just say what he wanted to say but when he was who's the mummy I almost I almost plot also tell, tell him what uh, mayor Koch said when he when someone of his age told him they were getting a lot of complaints about the volume yeah well, we were on stage doing uh, James's show and Ed Koch came out to say a few words to the audience. And while he was walking out, one of his aides is walking with him going, Mr. Mayor, Mr. Mayor, we've got a real problem. You know, there's 250,000 people there. They'd opened up <laughs> the entire city for this show. We're getting all these noise complaints from all the buildings all around the park. And Koch just looked at me and goes, fuck them. <laughs> Our kind of guy. I can hear that, yeah. 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 It's distinct. <laughs> we had a great show that night. Beautiful. It's amazing. That was an amazing tour. Great. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Go on YouTube and pull it up. And that the was Blossom show. That was James' idea yeah. to kick it up to eleven. Is that uh No, never. Yeah. Of course. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> I mean previously yeah. this was not, you know, what you would expect normally from James Taylor. He asked for a uh, he wanted to do an encore song. I didn't have a song in mind. And I think I was I suggested summertime blues, so that was like <laughs> he was having a party every night with that song. He was just going crazy. It was, it, was a, it was the most rock and roll version of James, I would say, ever. Yeah. yeah. It was the end of the innocence. Oh. Oh. <laughs> Leland. Yeah. <laughs> so I read somewhere your nickname, King of the Whole Note. You know, the thing is, we all suffer from this where people throw out these things. All I've ever talked about is really honoring the song. And if, you know, the song only needs a whole note, you know, you play whole notes. You don't sit there. You don't impose yourself on the music, you listen to the song and you find out what the song would like from you. And so, I mean, I, I go around and, and I, I watch like tons of YouTube videos of bass players and the Berkeley site and all this. And pretty much all I see is guys just flailing away <laughs> with monstrous amounts of chops, but nobody ever addresses is how to play a song. And there are, are so many songs I've done clinics where I've done like a 10 minute dissertation on a note because the options are pretty dramatic when you really break down a note so somehow somebody stuck that on me <laughs> on me and it, it's uh, you know they could have said called me mr potato head i don't know i can take my eyes out and change them with something i don't know but that's, but that's writers do that kind of stuff yeah little hooks for you and i remember we were in europe i think with james early on 
and he was given like a piece of crystal that was made for him, and it said like Mr. Sensitive on it. And we were sitting in the hotel, and he just looked at it, and he just went, okay, Mr. Sensitive shit, and throws it and smashed the thing. Because, you know, I mean, he got, that hook went on him, yet like with that, you know, 79 show, the guy could rock, and he could really up strong songs, but everybody would look at him as this kind of quiet, sensitive, everybody, all the women wanted to mother him and stuff. And, you know, and it gets to you after a while, because when you've got it on the other side of you to do the other things, and people are almost not accepting or recognizing those because their expectation from me is, yeah, he's the king of the whole note, but they don't give me credit. Like people come up and say, do you know who played bass on Spectrum, Billy Cobham? I go, I did. (laughs) You know, they go, what? (laughs) You played? That's Mr. Whole Note playing that stuff. So, you know, we're, I've we're, never heard you refer yeah, to as Mr. Whole Note, Leland. I, 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 I that never from? have either. I, I remember calling you Low Note, but not yeah. Whole Note. Yeah. The audience should know about Leland is that he has blazing chops and can play faster than me. So if he chooses to play Whole Note, it's going to say he's smart enough to choose that. You know, so to me, that, that nickname is all wrong. Oh, it's I think it's wrong, too. But, you know, I, I'm not going to track anybody down and then put out a contract on them or anything like that. <laughs> I think you should, actually. Well, I'm just happy they mentioned my name. Of course, it might, have been Louis, it might have been Louis Sonoma, for all I know. <laughs> the, very first, the very first gig we ever played with James, they, Russ, you were what, Rick Coco? Rick Coco. That's how the reviewer saw it, and they called me Lewis Sonoma because I think James played with an English bass player when he was <laughs> doing his Apple record named Lewis Sonoma. Nobody looked past it all. So Rick Coco is not bad. Rick Coco is yeah. good. I think it's an improvement, actually. <laughs> I think that's more swag. We should have some Rick Coco. Hey, watch yourself there, Mr. Korchmar. But that's good. No ego. You just play. You do what you do. It doesn't matter what anybody else is, you know, well, that, is, is yeah. saying or how they're working and to you. The, right. That's how you guys, I mean, you you bring, you don't bring anything extra. You bring what the song needs. And that's why you guys kept getting hired, because that's, you brought yeah. exactly what was what the song needed. They would have to pay more for extra. <laughs> yeah, they, they're it paying be- me by the note, so they'd say, how about a whole note? <laughs> <laughs> Does that bother you that you got called the Mellow Mafia? I mean, at the time... It kept getting you hired because that's what people wanted. No, we I, hated hired. That. I hated we're that. I hated that. Hired anyway. Yeah. Yeah. That, we, we didn't like that at all. Yeah. No. no. <laughs> the only thing that was worse than that was the Knights of Soft Rock. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it sounds I, like an impotency clinic. <laughs> I see m- more merch oh. opportunities here. Why don't you? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you got T-shirts now with that. So, what can we expect for the EP? Will there be additional songs or the, a few of the same songs on the new album, on the full length? Uh, the EP, we're just featuring one song from the new album. It's a great song that Waddy sings and wrote, Slipping and Sliding, and that's, that's going to be a single. And then we're doing a song from the very first record that Danny was talking about that was Danny Korchmar and the Immediate Family. Two songs from that. One is the single Quill Twist, will be on it. And then we're doing two, a live cut of Werewolves from a live show and we're doing a new version of uh, the Korchmar Henley song New York Minute that we've just recorded actually uh, remotely we all recorded our parts uh, individually and and Wadi and I are just finishing the mix I hope today of that so it'll be those five songs Didn't it rain Didn't it rain It's raining down so much money I thought I'd gone 
Till it all dries up And gets washed down the drain I'm top of the rock King of the hill Cream of the crop In for the kill On top of the rock Riding that thrill I'm sitting on top On top of the rock It's a whole that's a whole ball game. It's a whole new ball of wax. It's pretty damn good. <laughs> 14, 14 new songs. That's great. And they're all they're all complete and it's ready. It's gonna be Oh ready. yeah, it's ready to go. It's in the can. It's been there, yeah. Oh, we were going to be releasing it in November. Everything was documentary album, everything was slated for November until uh COVID came along, but we can't wait for everybody to hear it. I think you're gonna love it. We're so proud of it. Yes, indeed. I just wish this wasn't just audio, because Wad, man, you're looking so cool. The lighting's perfect, the shades are great. I'm, I'm going to take a screenshot, and I'm just going to go visit it for a while. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to take, I have some, because I recorded it, I'm going to have some screenshots that I'll, okay. we'll, we'll post. Always oh, right. the rock star. You're either undercover or rock star. <laughs> Leland, do people come up to you and say, where do I know you from? Because you, you have this distinctive look, and yet, you know, and everyone has seen you on stage yet they can't place you. I get the whole gamut. I get people, you know, everything from Lord of the Rings to ZZ Top to Oak Ridge Boys to the guy that lives under the freeway. (laughs) But I I do love the position that uh, certainly for me personally that we find ourselves in. People like come up like when I'd be on the road with Phil Collins, if somebody came up to Phil, they would be peeing in their pants and freaking out. But they come up to me and they just go, oh, man, I saw you. You know, there's a, a comfort and a familiarity because we've always been like the accessible guys um, to people where they're really intimidated by the, the celebrity artists that we've worked with. So I've really enjoyed it. I get I mean, I, you know, I deal with people every day, like in the supermarket and, you know, just walking down the street. Somebody will drive by and they'll just, oh, man, you rock. I love your bass playing kind of thing. So, yeah, I don't mind the recognition from that. I mean, I've, it, I can't blame anybody for my, except myself because I've, <laughs> I've been too lazy to do anything about it for so many years that it became an image. It just is what it, it just is what it is. But nobody's ever been, you know, really, you know, creepy about it. Everybody's been really kind of nice and just they feel a certain sense of familiarity. And I, and I embrace that. Yeah. So if somebody comes up, I'm happy to talk to them and, you know, and, and uh, hang with them a little bit. But airports, all those places, you know, you find yourself being stopped all the time. I like it. I mean, I, I'm not a social person when I'm home, but I know how to be social when I'm in a social situation. As a music fan, you just you hit the nail on the head. I think for us as a, as a fan of music and, you know, watching you guys playing over and over, that brings you the comfort, not so much enthralled with the celebrity of the singer, whoever it might be, but there is something comfort, comfortable about it. Yeah. There's, that's, it's like we, we're the immediate family. Yeah. I mean, yeah. this is really, this will always be there. transcends just the title of like an album or anything like that. It really is, is a philosophical name. This first time I saw, like when Danny put down, you know, Danny Korshwein, immediate family, I thought that's the perfect name for this because mm. we really are a brotherhood together. And the thing that's to me is wonderful is for the 50 years that I've known <laughs> most of the guys and for the 15 years that, I, that I've known Steve and worked together, I've never felt 
any weirdness, any animosity. You hear of all these bands that get in fist fights and they're always, you know, psychodrama all the time. And everybody here is on the same page. They all just want to make the best music they can to share each other's talents and company. And I'm forever grateful that I have these guys in my life. And uh, they are one special cast of characters that uh, it's hard to come by, but time has really been a telling thing for us that, that a half a century and we're still digging each other and still moving forward. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, it sure is. It's very inspiring. This will be a good place to end it. You put the exclamation mark. There we go. Thank you so much, guys. This was really wonderful. I appreciate you taking the time out to talk with us. This was wonderful. We're really looking forward to hearing more from you. The first single is Cruel Twist by the Immediate Family. It's out now. You can check it out. And eventually uh, the, the documentary. It's piecemeal, yeah. piece but it's, it's all going to come out and it's all going to look wonderful once it's out. I'm sure you guys uh, can't wait to, to release this into the, into the world. And a music fan should not miss it. Yes, no. thank you guys so much. Thank you, Dave. Thank you both so much. Oh, thank you, David. Yeah, I didn't mean anything I said, by the way. Yeah, oh. <laughs> Dave can edit that so out. Nice. It was worded so lovely, though. Yeah. yeah, I just thought you guys might think like a like I came out of a pot. Where's Lee? This yeah. guy's being. Holly's going to send us a video recording of that. <laughs> yes. Oh yeah. Have it. <laughs> we know it's there and he seems sincere yeah <laughs> i can do that that's all that matters if he seems sincere that's all that matters <laughs> that's right. 50 years in the studio gives you means sincere <laughs> we'll take it thank you yeah. very much thank you that was great really 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 you guys fun. are the best yeah thanks thank you guys, you guys thank, you so thank you so much thank you that's thank wonderful you. thanks for having us all right holly that was tremendous fun wasn't it that was so much fun. Yeah, it was great. These guys have been around. I mean, they keep telling us they've been around for 2,000 years because they've created 2,000 years worth of music. It's just uh, it's just been a treat spending uh, this time with them. They're the best of the best. They are They're, the absolute best of the best. They are. You know, when I go to the car wash and I ask for the best of the best, that's what these guys You get are. the immediate family. You get the immediate family. <laughs> they give me the best of the best. So it was a lot of fun. Thanks so much for tuning in. Sign up for our newsletter, our monthly newsletter. You can find that at, on our website at WDDIMpodcast.com. And you can find us on Facebook at What Difference Does It Make? And on Instagram at WDDIM Podcast and on Twitter at WDDIM Podcast. What Difference Does It Make? is a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast family. Until next week, this is Dave. This is Holly. Check you later. Over and out. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. 
That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 